0: You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Our sermon comes from Mark 8. 1-21 1-21 through 21, and please stand if you are able for the reading of the word. So again that's Mark 8, 1-21. During those days another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave thanks to his disciples And gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people and they did so they had a few small fish as well he gave thanks for them and also told the disciples to distribute them the people ate and were satisfied afterward the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over about 4,000 were present after he had sent them away he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmantua. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for the one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? and ears but fail to hear. And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand?
1: It's good to be together and we have been in a series in Mark's gospel even as we heard those words read this morning It's a reminder of how Jesus is the servant king And we have been in this the end of the first section in Mark as Jesus has been ministering in and around the vicinity of Galilee What we saw last week in chapter 7 verses 24 through 37 is how Jesus went about challenging multiple divisions challenging, stark social divisions that humans have a tendency to put up. He did that in um, honoring the faith of a woman, a dear woman from Syrophoenicia, and then also when healing the man who was deaf at the end of that passage as well. And what we saw is that God's kingdom knows no divisions. All who come to him in faith receive bread. In the passage we're looking at this morning, the table is set. For all who gather to receive bread. In fact, there's a little kind of mini bread saga that has been taking place here in the middle of Mark, really running from chapter 6, the first feeding of the 5,000, to here in chapter 8, with the feeding of the 4,000, and then this ongoing discussion about bread that reveals a little bit of the disciples' um, slowness to get it. I feel like I identify right with them along the way. I feel like I'm preaching my message before I preach my message, but anyway... That's where we are in the book here, and really what happens, I think, is that the discussion with the woman from Syrophoenicia about the sharing in the children's bread really comes to the fore here, as all who gather receive bread. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Help us to take the truths that we hear this morning, Lord, plant them deeply within us, and may it not end there, but let let it transform us from the inside out, and would you use us as your instruments of grace? Thank you that you use us in the distribution of bread, the bread of life. Nourish us, strengthen us through your word, through communion, through song, through, through prayer, all that takes place this morning, Lord, would it be for you and for your glory. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Repetition is the mother of learning. Have you heard that, that saying before? Think about things like preparing to play an instrument. I, I think about, uh, you know, hours spent in a practice room in high school. Or how about getting those free throws down, you know, that, taking that shot over and over again. Or learning to ride a bike or experiments in the lab Some of you are starting to twitch when I say that, so maybe I shouldn't use that too much as an example, but you get the idea. Repetition, repetition can be a highly effective teacher, especially when we have a tendency to not get things right away. Here in Mark 8, Jesus repeats a miracle, but with some key differences that show that we're in good company among the disciples. They were slow to get things at time, and so are we. So are we. But there's more than meets the eye in this story. It is not just mere repetition, and we'll get into that as we go here. But what we discover in these verses, verses one through 21 of chapter eight, is three encounters at the end of what is the first section, the first main section of Mark's Gospel. Jesus and the crowd, Jesus and the religious leaders, and then Jesus and his disciples. And so first, in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus shows that he is the bread of life who fully satisfies all who come to him. You know, upon first reading of this passage, it's easy to feel like we've been here before. And in fact, skeptics have gone to great lengths to try to show the similarities between the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 in order to try to show that they are one and the same. And certainly there are many similarities from the large crowd of people to the compassion that Jesus shows, to the setting in the wilderness, the question of provisions, the initiation of the meal, and even the abundance, the full satisfaction and all that is gathered afterwards. But there are also several key differences, and I think Mark wants us to notice those differences in such a way that it paints this as a, as a separate event with a key, for a key reason. One difference is that Christ's compassion is that they are famished after three days there rather than uh, that they are sheep without a shepherd, if you think back to chapter 6. Jesus takes the initiative in this story rather than the disciples. The crowd is there for three days rather than one. The numbers of the loaves and fish are different as well as the, the number of baskets full afterwards and the crowd, the number of the crowd and probably most importantly, to top it all off, as you heard read in verses 19 through 21, is that Jesus, in asking those direct questions to the disciples, calls out both the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 in order to, make this, in order to help them in their key understanding. But more than just repetition, I believe that what happens here is while the feeding of the 5,000 took place in largely Jewish territory there are a number of clues that what happens here is actually in largely Gentile territory, almost like bookends on this bread saga. Not only from the phrase during those days, which is a reference back to the the place of the Decapolis, that's the the last geography marker in the passage. The Decapolis was a a group of 10 largely Greek cities, uh, largely Gentile cities as well, Jesus also recognizes that some of them have come from a long distance, verse three, or from far away. Indeed, the word for basket in verse eight is different than the the normal Jewish term in chapter six. <laughs> you know that uh, you know that that big wicker hamper that you took to college and you still have sticking around. You know, still hanging on for whatever reason. You can't get rid of it. That is what we're talking about here. In fact, the word, the word that's used for basket is the same that is used later in Acts when Paul is lowered over the wall to escape, uh, to escape persecution. A picture a big wicker basket. That's the, that's the term that is used here. And in verse 10, Jesus and the disciples return to Jewish territory in Dalmanutha. And so the feeding of the 4,000 here in largely Gentile territory, I believe, signals the full inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. Jesus offers this predominantly Gentile crowd the same opportunity to feed on his teaching and to feed on the bread that he multiplies miraculously. He is not a redeemer. He is the redeemer who offers redemption to all people, not just the people of Israel. And this feast in the desert powerfully foreshadows the gathering of people from every tongue and tribe and nation who will dine at the heavenly banquet that is to come. The bread of Christ is available to everyone. is available to everyone who seeks it. And he alone provides beyond satisfaction. Christ was also concerned not only about spiritual matters but also about the people's physical and emotional well-being. That is why he has compassion in this passage. And if we are going to reflect Christ's same heart of compassion in this world, it will mean being serious about even physical human needs, such as hunger and malnutrition, the whole range of human needs. We are a unity, we are a holistic people. And he sees our needs. He brings about wholeness, shalom in a word. I think similarly, it is easy for us to fall into the same mindset as the disciples who ask, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? I think we are slow to remember all that God has done on our behalf. We are mired in what we could call spiritual forgetfulness at times. We slip into patterns of worldly thinking and leave Jesus out of our calculations, failing to draw from previous experiences of the Lord's power. And that's what makes the, question Jesus ask, the questions Jesus asked in verses 17 through 21 so vitally important. And yet, despite their failure, Jesus did not give up on them. He actually personally involves them in the distribution, in the passing out of the bread that is multiplied by Jesus. And just as Jesus included them in serving needy people, so he continues to use people like you and like me today despite our failures, despite our spiritual forgetfulness. He involves us in the vital gospel work of serving up the bread of life. Isn't that amazing? Serving up the bread of life. Well, this part of the story ends with Jesus getting into the boat and actually traveling back toward, toward Jewish territory. And to mark the contrast, so starkly, what we see is that he is immediately confronted by the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so in, re- in refusing to give the Pharisees a sign, Jesus pronounces judgment and disengages with them. Verses 11 through 13. You know, the Pharisees come to question Jesus, but it is done, as the text reveals, with the aim of actually testing him this, I think, should cause us to recall Israel's testing of God in the wilderness, out of hearts, as the psalmist says in Psalm 95, out of hearts that had gone astray, even after he provided bread for them, even after the manna in the desert. And they, what they wanted was, is key here, what they wanted was a sign from heaven. They had seen some of his miracles, which apparently they viewed as ambiguous but what they want is a conclusive sign from God himself, definitive proof that God is with him in the form of some sort of cosmic phenomenon. It'd be like demanding to see someone's credentials today. But we have seen in Mark how Jesus has dealt, can I say, even patiently with these skeptical religious leaders. First of all, how he heals the leper and then sends him back as a witness to the power of God sends him back to be for that, uh, that miracle to be confirmed by the religious leaders. He confirms his authority to forgive sins when he heals the paralytic in their presence. He justifies why he eats with sinners and why his disciples do not fast and, and so on. But they have rejected this evidence. They want some sort of, you know, we have the 4th of July coming up, right? They want some sort of cosmic firework display. something to validate in their mind who Jesus actually is. But Jesus refuses to play by the rules. They won't believe no matter what. You know, there's a wonderful detail at this point in the story, and that is that Jesus sighed deeply. He sighed deeply. Actually, it should cause us to think about what he does even as he prepares to heal the man who was deaf in the previous passage. But here it refers more to indignation, perhaps even grief, than anger. It is a note of exasperation because of the stubborn unbelief that lies behind their demand for a sign. And surprisingly, what Jesus does here is he involves, he includes this generation. This generation, he says. Much like what was said of those wandering in the wilderness during the first exodus. And in saying truly, I tell you, it introduces what is a a solemn pronouncement of judgment. I love how David Garland puts it here. He says, But Jesus will offer this generation no noisy sign from heaven, only the wind whistling through an empty tomb after his resurrection. Amen. And so he left them. Did you notice that? This signals Jesus' deliberate disengagement with the Pharisees and the generation they represent, and while they had been physically close to Him, it reveals that their hearts were actually far from Him. If Jesus' words and deeds are not enough to persuade people today, nothing will convince them. I believe ultimately a demand for a sign is an expression of unbelief. It is a denial of the radical kind of faith that we are called to have in response to God's gospel of grace. And what they wanted from Jesus effectively removed that need for saving faith. Are there ways, though, that we end up putting Jesus to the test today? Hmm. It might look more like something like bargaining, (laughs) bargaining with God. Have you found yourself doing this before? That sort of, God, if you do this... I will fill in the blank, like whatever it is that we, some renewed sense of dedication or whatever the case may be. Sometimes we ignore the plain language of Scripture in the process or even the ways that God comes to us in the ordinary of everyday life. And as Jesus says, and it's actually in quoting Deuteronomy 6, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He says that when he is facing his own temptation, do not put the Lord your God to the test Once Jesus disengages with the religious leaders, though, he and the disciples get back into the boat for the third encounter. I kind of wish we had, you know, you know, that's the kind of the layover in the Indiana Jones movies where it shows where they all, where they travel to. Like, that kind of plays in my mind in all the movements in the Bible. I don't know, maybe too much of of a window into how my mind operates, but I enjoy reading Scripture often with a map open, too, to trace these various movements. And so what Jesus does is get back into the boat for this third encounter with the disciples. Verses 14 to 21. In warning against the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, Jesus calls out the disciples' lack of understanding. The fact that they forgot to bring bread seems a little ironic after the amount of leftovers that happened in the the story in the feeding of the 4,000, but... But what Jesus does is he uses that as an opportunity to say, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. The key to this warning is understanding the effects of yeast or leaven. All right, truth and advertising here. I' uh, So curious, but how many of you all, show of hands, got into making sourdough bread, especially early in the pandemic? Don't be, don't be ashamed. I like to see those hands. I know there's more, I know, oh, okay, there's some reluctant, that's right, that's right, embrace it, that's okay. So you have actually the best understanding of what is, what is here, what is at the heart of this metaphor that is used. It hinges on the ability of something that is small to grow in size, to spread, and to permeate something entirely. In Jewish usage, and actually in Greek usage as well, even when you look at the early early manuscripts, it was actually a common metaphor for a, a corrupting influence. That's how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 when he writes, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? What's more, if you think about the, the people of Israel, God's people were called to remove it from their homes in preparation for the Passover. It was a symbol of the purification of God's God's people, God's redeemed people. But why here does Jesus warn against the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod? I believe the key to that is that both are corrupting, spreading influences that can easily spread like yeast through dough and fundamentally change their host. And Jesus didn't want them adopting the values and the mindset of the Pharisees and of Herod Antipas, that is this regional ruler who propped himself up as a king who we last saw in chapter 6 beheading John the Baptist, standing in the way of God's work in the world. Not only do Herod and the Pharisees oppose Jesus, they are actually threats to his very life. Remember at the point when the Pharisees go out and begin to plot with the who? The Herodians, how they might kill Jesus. That's what's happening. It's like a, like a slow burn behind the scenes, plotting with how they can get rid of them. Well, the disciples take the term yeast literally, I love that, and begin, uh, some of the translations are a little clunky in how they render this, but essentially it, it appears as though they begin quarreling over whose responsibility it was to bring the bread. I think the ESV actually pulls that out a little bit more, but have you been there? (laughs) With a group, or maybe it's your family, whatever, but like, you were supposed to grab that. No, you were supposed to grab that. And you're like, it doesn't change the fact that we don't have it. So anyway, but that's what's happening here, it appears. And their inability to grasp the spiritual truths of what Jesus is saying actually should, I think it should cause us, to even notice the faith of the woman from Syrophoenicia even more, who is able to, in a moment, in hearing that mini-parable, if you think back to chapter 7, verses 24 and following, is able to understand what Jesus is saying and actually respond to him and amplify the parable that he uses. Instead, these, i got to use this, I'll, I'll just say, these knuckleheads, I have to say that term because uh, my father-in-law has tasked my daughter Izzy with caring for her two younger brothers who she, he told her to call them knuckleheads. So, that's right. That is a common term in our family's usage. And so it's, you know, when they, when they get together, it's how are the knuckleheads doing, you know? She's good at caring for them. Well, that's, that's what we see here with the disciples and even more so with these questions that Jesus asks They are absorbed by temporal things. They are influenced by worldly thinking, and so Jesus asks a series of eight really revealing questions, one after the other, that get to the heart of their spiritual state. Why are you talking about having no bread? I think this points to the relative unimportance of their concern about the bread. Do you still still not see or understand? You know, the miracles that they have just witnessed reveal His authority. They have been given, if you think back to chapter 4, they have been given a deeper awareness, the secret of the kingdom of God, the mystery of the kingdom. Third question, are your hearts hardened? They, of all people, should not have hearts that are like the Pharisees, hearts that reveal a dullness in thinking that causes them to not realize Jesus' identity and teaching. Fourth question, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? I think this contrasts with the the healing of the man who was deaf in just the previous verses there at the end of chapter 7. They are in danger, essentially, of becoming actual outsiders, those who he, Jesus has invited to follow him. That is the, the heart of the warning here. And it is an echo, I believe, of Jeremiah 5, verse 21, that's When the prophet writes, hear this, you foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. You know, actually, flip over to that real quick. Can I use the word excursus? I don't know. But Jeremiah 5, uh, that is verse 21 that I just read, but in thinking about this for a moment, I believe verses 26 through 28 then strike at the heart of what was happening in the lives of the religious leaders. It could be that Jesus had this whole passage in mind even as he calls them, as he calls out not only his followers, but then strikes at the heart of what was happening among the religious leaders. Look at Jeremiah 5, 26 through 28. Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds, and like those who set traps to catch people. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. This in a nutshell, is what is happening among the religious leaders of the day that Jesus calls out, and actually at this point separates from. We don't see them in the story until much later on. Fifth question, though, and don't you remember, oh man. This is a challenge to recall what they have seen and heard. Hmm. I think it's a question we need to be asked, too. And don't you Remember? Here the questions uh, are no longer rhetorical. So the sixth question, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Should remind us of the first feeding miracle. Jesus confronts their petty thinking about a few loaves when the one who can feed the multitude is in their midst. Actually, if you think about, I'm sorry, I keep having like tangents or something like that, but If you think about the question that the disciples ask in verse four, where can anyone find bread for these? There is not just anyone with them. There is the bread of life standing before them. How many pieces did you pick up? And then the seventh question, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twice Jesus has met the needs of the people and shown how the gospel here expands, shows how the gospel is for all people, Jew and Gentile alike, regardless of our background. And the last question, which kind of echoes at the end of this major section in Mark, the first main act, if you will, in Mark, do you not understand? Do you still not understand? Those who have the eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus has shown through his miracles who he really is. And the divine authority that he holds. The one loaf who is with them in the boat is their creator, their sustainer, their savior. All together, these questions form a really what feels like a fairly severe rebuke of the disciples. I almost find myself going like, maybe after the first three or four questions, I would have gone like, okay, I think I get, I think I get where you're going with this. But there is a bright spot. Did you notice The words, still not. Or your translation might say, not yet. Do you not yet understand? Verses 17 and 21. They were being brought along the journey of greater understanding. This prepared prepared them and should prepare us, I think, for the main section that follows. The next main section that of the new Exodus way, running from 8, chapter 8, verse 22, through chapter 10, verse 52. And this second act will begin with the opening of the eyes of the blind. Friends, just as the disciples were at risk of having the same attitudes that led the Pharisees and Herod astray, we too need to remain watchful and vigilant for thinking that reflects what we could call the spirit of the age. Church, the way of Jesus is totally different. And we have a tendency, like the disciples, to be preoccupied with earthly things. Dexter may have been writing in the, the South Asia Bible, Bible commentary. This just really captured me when he wrote this. Jesus' words still challenge us. It is possible for us to get so concerned with numbers and practicalities in our churches and missions organizations that we do not stop to listen to the Lord or see what He is teaching us. When this happens, we may puff up like fermenting dough, but may fail to proclaim and live out Jesus' message. I love that quote the disciples were indeed slow learners but are we really any different even insiders like the 12 were susceptible to spiritual blindness and deafness how quickly we forget truths like luke 1:37 for no word from god will ever fail how quickly do we forget truths like philippians 4:12 through 13 i know what it is to be in need and know what it is to have plenty i have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through Him, who gives me strength. And Philippians four nineteen, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. Church, we have a deep need for remembering. Kent Hughes writes, "There is no better shield against spiritual declension and weakness than Christian remembering." And so, here's the bottom line. In putting all this together in this passage, I believe that it points to the fact that Jesus is the one true loaf who is rejected by some, gradually grasped by others, and fully satisfies all who come to him regardless of our background. Did you notice that key detail in the boat? The one loaf? I think this is a, a key detail that we were meant to see because Jesus, the very bread of life, was there in their midst. He was with them. The feeding of the 4,000 is the second exodus-like feeding in Mark's gospel, but this time, as I mentioned, it is in Gentile territory. It points to Jesus' identity as the true bread of life and anticipates that all the nations will come and share in the children's bread, God's gospel of grace. And the messianic banquet prophesied by Isaiah is not just for the people of Israel, but for all peoples everywhere. Isaiah 25 paints this beautiful picture, verses 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." Church, Jesus is the one true loaf, the very bread of life, who is rejected by some, gradually grasped by others, but fully satisfies all who come to him in faith, regardless of our background. Amen, church? Amen. Let's say that one more time. Amen, church. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your life-giving word. We do pray that you would cause us to encounter Christ, that you would remove our spiritual blindness, our deafness, the ways in which that we are impoverished. Father, thank you for encountering us through your gospel of grace, for transforming us from the inside out, and for using us, frail and broken people that we may be, to help other people find bread. And so, God, we worship you. We trust in you. We thank you for your plan to rescue people from every tongue and tribe and nation, creating one new people through the cross. We worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious and matchless name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.